Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the uh, Cato Institute, and it's my honor and privilege and challenge to moderate our discussion today. Um, since it was revealed recently by the New York Times, the Bush administration's previously secret NSA surveillance program has brought to the fore a number of complex legal questions. Does the executive branch have inherent authority to conduct the program? What is Congress's authority to set limits on the executive branch? What role should the courts play? We will discuss those questions today. My colleague Bob Levy, in recent testimony before the Senate Judiciary <coughs> Committee, told the senators neither the post-9-11 authorization for the use of military force nor the president's inherent powers trump the express prohibition in the FISA statute. The executive branch cannot, in the face of an express prohibition by Congress, unilaterally set the rules, execute the rules, and eliminate oversight by the other branches. My colleague Roger Pilon in the Wall Street Journal recently responding to an article by another Cato scholar, Richard Epstein, wrote, no court has ever read the president's foreign, affair, foreign affairs power so narrowly. Congress's micromanagement of the executive, which FISA amounts to, leads only to judicial hermeneutics concerning what Congress really meant. And so the issue is joined. Roger Pilon is the Vice President for Legal Affairs, the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and the Founder and Director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. And in that role, he is also the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Prior to joining Cato, he held five senior positions in the Reagan administration, including in the State and Justice Departments. Roger Pilon holds a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago and a J.D. from the George Washington University School of Law. Robert Levy is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, which he joined in 1997 after 25 years in business. Uh, and after that business career and after law school, he clerked for Judge Royce Lamberth on the D.C. Uh, District Court and for uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He received his Ph.D. from American University and his J.D. from the George Mason University School of Law. So we have four Ph.D.s up here, none of them mine. So, monarchy and wiretapping or anarchy and pedophagy Is that the choice that we have to make today? Our topic is Resolved, the Bush NSA Surveillance Program is Illegal, arguing in the affirmative, Robert Levy. It's great to be with you. President Bush, as you know, has authorized the NSA to eavesdrop without obtaining a warrant uh, on telephone calls and emails and other communications between U.S. persons that's defined as citizens and permanent resident aliens uh, in the United States and other persons outside the United States. Today, I'm going to be addressing only the legality of the NSA program, not the policy question of whether the program is necessary and effective from a national security perspective. Uh, if the program is both essential and illegal, uh, then the obvious choices are to change the program so that it complies with the law or change the law so that it 
authorizes the program. So let's uh, begin with legal question number one, and that is, does the NSA warrantless surveillance program violate the Fourth Amendment? Now, as you may know, the Fourth Amendment requires probable cause in order to obtain a warrant, but it does not require a warrant for all searches. It only requires that searches be reasonable. And there are numerous instances of permissible warrantless searches, including hot pursuit and stop and frisk and automobile searches and airport luggage searches. Uh, so the administration can credibly argue uh, that it can conduct some types of warrantless surveillance uh, without violating the Fourth Amendment. And because the president's powers are elevated during time of war, uh, his authorization of the NSA's surveillance program might be justifiable if Congress had not expressly disapproved. But Congress did expressly disapprove in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the FISA statute. And therefore, the proper question is not whether the president has inherent authority. The answer to that question is yes, he does, in some cases. But the narrower issue in the NSA case is whether the president, in the face of an express statutory prohibition, uh, can direct that warrantless surveillance uh, is permissible? The answer to that is no, and there's no case law to support an argument to the contrary. Although the Constitution establishes that the president does have inherent wartime powers, it does not establish the scope of those powers. And because Congress has concurrent authority in this area, an express prohibition by Congress, like in the FISA statute, is very persuasive when deciding whether the president is overreached. Now, this distinction between concurrent powers and exclusive powers is important. For example, the president's pardon power, his power to grant pardons laid out in the constitutions, that's an exclusive power. There is no stated power in the Constitution uh, for Congress to modify the president's power by legislation. Congress could not, for example, say, well, Mr. President, you have the power to grant pardons, but not in cases of child abuse. There's no power for Congress to do that. But by contrast, the president's wartime powers are shared with Congress. Congress is constitutionally authorized to declare war, to define and punish offenses against the laws of nations, to make rules concerning capture on land and water, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to suspend habeas corpus, and a few other wartime powers. That suggests that the president must comply with duly enacted statutes unless he can show that Congress has exceeded its authority. And in this instance, President Bush has made no such showing. And that leads me to question number two. Does the warrantless surveillance program by the NSA comply with the FISA statute? It does not. The text of FISA is unambiguous. A person is guilty of an offense if he intentionally engages in electronic surveillance except as authorized by statute. Now, some will argue that, look, FISA was crafted back in 1978. It was meant to deal with peacetime intelligence. True enough. But that does not mean the statute can be ignored when it's applied to the post-9-11 uh, war on terror. In passing FISA, Congress expressly contemplated warrantless surveillance during wartime and limited it to the first 15 days after a declaration of war. And equally important, FISA's warrant requirements and the electronic surveillance provisions were amended by the USA Patriot Act 2001, passed in response to 9-11 and signed by President George W. Bush. 
If 9-11 triggered wartime, as the administration has repeatedly and I think convincingly argued, then the amended FISA statute is clearly a wartime statute. Moreover, the Justice Department has conceded in a December 2005 letter to Congress that the President's authorization of that program did not comply with the procedures of the FISA statute. The Department of Justice offered two justifications, the first of which is that Congress's post-9-11 authorization to use military force provides the statutory authorization that FISA requires. Recall that FISA says you can't conduct warrantless surveillance except as authorized by statute. Now comes the administration and says, well, here's the statute that authorizes it. The authorization for use of military force passed after 9-11. So question number three then. Does the AUMF, the authorization to use military force, authorize warrantless surveillance by the NSA? Under the AUMF, and I quote from the statute, the president is authorized to, all, to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons that may have been connected to 9-11. That cannot sensibly mean that the AUMF authorizes warrantless surveillance by the NSA in the face of an express statutory prohibition in FISA that limits such surveillance to the first 15 days after a declaration of war. There's a settled canon of statutory construction that says specific provisions in a, tra in a statute supersede general provisions. So when the FISA statute specifically forbids electronic surveillance without a court order, while the AUMF more generally permits necessary and appropriate force, it is quite simply bizarre to conclude that electronic surveillance without a court order is thereby authorized. In voting for the AUMF, uh, the members of Congress surely did not intend to make compliance with the FISA statute optional up to the President. In fact, Congress was simultaneously relaxing selected provisions of FISA via the Patriot Act. So here's how the Washington Post put it, and they hit the nail on the head in the December editorial. Clear-headed members of Congress voting for the AUMF understood themselves to be authorizing the capture of al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters. We doubt any members even dreamed they were changing domestic wiretapping rules, particularly because they were focused on that very issue in passing the USA Patriot Act. Now, notably, not one of the 518 members of Congress who voted for the AUMF has now come forth to claim that his or her vote was intended to approve NSA warrantless uh, surveillance. Now still, proponents of this surveillance program argue that the AUMF must necessarily include, as part of all necessary and appropriate force, it must necessarily include the gathering of battlefield intelligence. Yes, it does. But communications from the battlefield or from anywhere else outside the United States can be monitored without violating FISA. Even sophisticated data mining programs are permitted as long as the target of the surveillance is not a person in the United States. It's a very important distinction. So when the President says or his Justice Department says, look, you're preventing us from monitoring battlefield intelligence, it's simply not true. If somebody calls me from the battlefield or indeed even from London, England or Paris, France, and the target of the surveillance is the person calling me, that call can be intercepted and there is no prohibition on such interception. The only time the warrant is required is if as a result of calls to me, the government begins to suspect that I may be an agent and then wishes to monitor all of my calls, 
incoming and outgoing. At that point, it has to get an, a, a warrant <coughs> under the FISA statute. Even if the target is a U.S. person, surveillance is okay as long as a FISA warrant's obtained. So in a nutshell, FISA covers domestic surveillance. The AUMF simply does not. Now, Attorney General Gonzalez has a second and I think more plausible defense of warrantless wiretaps, namely that Article Two of the Constitution, which states that the executive power shall be, invested, shall be vested in a president who shall be commander-in-chief, that power, says the attorney, <clears throat> excuse me, says the Attorney General trumps any contrary statute during time of war. Thus, question number four. Do the President's inherent war powers under Article II allow him to ignore the FISA statute? Answer, no. The President's war powers are broad, but they are not boundless. The issue is not whether he has unilateral executive authority, but rather the extent of that authority. And the key Supreme Court opinion that provides a framework for resolving that issue is Justice Jackson's concurrence in Youngstown Sheet and 2 v. Sawyer. That was a 1952 case denying President Truman's authority to seize the steel mills. Justice Jackson offered the following analysis. First, when the President acts pursuant to an express or implied authorization from Congress, his authority is at its maximum. Second, when the President acts in the absence of either a congressional grant or denial of authority, then there's a zone of twilight in which the Congress and the President may have concurrent authority or where the distribution of authority is uncertain. But third, and most importantly, where the President takes measures that are incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest. The NSA program clearly belongs in this third category. The President has acted in the face of an express statutory prohibition from Congress. And consider this. If warrantless domestic surveillance is indeed incidental to the President's inherent powers under Article II, then so too are things like sneak and peek searches, roving wiretaps, library record searches, national security letters, all of which were vigorously debated in deciding whether to reauthorize the Patriot Act. Now, could the President have proceeded with all of those activities even if Congress decided not to reauthorize the Patriot Act? And if so, what was the purpose of the debate? Indeed, why do we even need a Patriot Act? There is a slippery slope argument associated with the claim that the President's inherent wartime powers are sufficient to justify the NSA program. He made similar claims and continues to make similar claims for military tribunals without congressional authorization, for secret CIA prisons, for the indefinite detention of U.S. citizens like Hamdi and Padilla, uh, for enemy combatant declarations without hearings that are required under the Geneva Conventions, and for some interrogation techniques that a lot of people believe may have violated our treaty commitments banning torture. Now, are any of those activities outside the President's wartime authority? And if not, then what are the bounds, if any, that constrain the President's conduct. Supporters of President Bush need to remember that a grant of presidential power sets a precedent. Imagine unchecked executive powers like those that the President now claims in the hand of Bush's predecessor, or indeed in the hands of his successor, 
especially if she has the same last name as his predecessor. Now, if it's necessary to monitor communications by U.S. persons in the U.S., then the President could and should have sought a FISA warrant. The requirement to obtain a FISA warrant is probable cause that someone may be an agent of a foreign power or a terrorist group. That standard is far below the usual criminal law requirement for probable cause that a crime has been or is about to be committed. Almost all FISA requests are granted. Five, one, two, three, four, five out of 19,000 have been denied. An emergency approval for wiretaps can be handled within hours. In fact, the FISA statute allows the government in emergency situations to put a wiretap in place immediately without a warrant and then seek court approval later within 72 hours. Now, Attorney General Gonzalez has declared 72 hours is not enough. It takes longer than that to prepare a warrant application. Well, that's tantamount to arguing that the Justice Department lacks sufficient personnel to handle its workload, and so it's authorized, maybe even compelled, uh, to act illegally to circumvent the prescribed procedures. It's also important to note that that 72-hour window was increased from 24 hours in the Intelligence Authorization Act of 2002, just four years ago. So if the longer period, 72 hours, is still inadequate, why hasn't the administration simply requested another extension from Congress? And if the president thought that FISA should be amended, he had a convenient vehicle for that purpose shortly after 9-11. That's when the Patriot Act was passed and signed by President Bush. The president could have, but he did not seek new authority for the NSA, authority that he has now decreed unilaterally without input from either Congress or the courts. The enactment of FISA was intended in part to curb abuses of executive power. Now FISA used kid gloves, velvet gloves, to accomplish that purpose. It legalized, it made legal some of the conduct that had previously been illegal, including the surveillance of U.S. persons under liberalized warrant procedures. Well, now the administration contends that FISA, because it still requires a warrant, didn't go far enough. Maybe so. But most presidents, when they think a law is outdated or ineffective, they ask Congress to amend or repeal the law. Bush, on the other hand, claims the power to repeal FISA unilaterally, simply by ignoring its provisions. He says that Article II gives him all the authority he needs. But Section 3 of that article obligates him to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And FISA is one of those laws, duly enacted by Congress, signed by a previous president, and later adopted by Bush when he signed the Patriot Act. Bush cannot, on the one hand, agree to FISA amendments, and then, on the other hand, insist that those same provisions are an abuse of his constitutional authority. The framers made it crystal clear that congressional and executive powers could and must overlap. Here's James Madison in Federalist 47. The assignment of certain powers to Congress and certain others to the executive did not mean that these departments ought to have no control over the acts of each other. And Federalist 48, 
unless these departments be connected and blended as to give each a constitutional control over the others, a free government can never in practice be duly maintained. And that lesson wasn't lost on the Supreme Court. Here is Justice O'Connor's very recent plurality opinion in the Hamdi case. Quote, whatever power the U.S. Constitution envisions for the executive in times of conflict, it most assuredly envisions a role for all three branches of government when individual liberties are at stake. Now still, the key question is, can a mere statute, FISA, shape the President's Article II authority? Answer, yes. Why? Because the Constitution says so. Article I, Section 8, expressly states, Congress shall make all laws which are necessary and proper for executing not only its own powers, but, and I quote, all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. So the Constitution explicitly provides that the President's inherent wartime authority is subject to regulation by Congress. Maybe some regulations of national security are too absurd or too cumbersome for emergencies, and therefore they might be deemed unnecessary or improper. But the burden of proof is on the President and he has not produced any evidence at all. Thank you very much. And now, arguing in the negative, Roger Pilon. Well, thank you, David. As those of you who have heard me in the past can tell, I'm laboring today under a serious cold. Uh, lest you think it's due to a stress cold from the anticipation of debating the inimitable Bob Levy. I can only say that my wife caught it a week ago and gave it this week to my son and me together. So um, it's not from that. I will just hope that my voice holds out for the remainder of uh, this program. Now, the, um, let me begin by telling you what I'm going to argue, namely that the NSA program is legal, in fact, uh, it's Congress that is acting illegally by treading on the president's inherent power. I'll argue, moreover, uh, that the president not only has the power, but the duty to conduct the NSA program, whatever Congress says or does. So clearly that puts me on the opposite side of Bob in this uh, debate. Right at the outset, however, um, let me sharpen the point, and I will do so by pointing to the two rights that are at issue here. There is, on the one hand, the right to privacy in your communications, your emails, your phone calls, and so forth, which the Fourth Amendment speaks to and which the critics of the administration have pointed to. <clears throat> on the other hand, there is the right to be secure, which is, after all, the reason we create government in the first place, to protect us from threats from abroad as well as from our neighbors. Now. When you compare the losses that arise from violations of these two rights, what you get is this. On the one hand, your conversation or email will be overheard. You won't even know it. Where is the loss? It is, if anything, trivial. By contrast, if the government fails to secure our right to be secure, we have 9-11. And so the losses, when you compare it that way, strike me as... Uh, leading to the conclusion that when you compare these two rights, one is by far more important than the other. And let me add, for those of you who are especially concerned about your privacy in matters of this kind, foreign intelligence agencies 
all over the world are not similarly constrained as is the United States agency. And they are listening into all manner of things and communicating that information to the American intelligence agencies. So the idea that your calls and emails are immune because we operate in this country under the Fourth Amendment is strained, to say the least. You do not and should not count on security in your communications. All right, now let's move over to the argument which concerns primarily powers and not rights, uh, because the argument has several parts. Uh, it may be useful for me to outline it here. First, a couple of preliminary remarks, and then after that, uh, I'll outline the practical and technical problems we're up against here. Um, the, um, and in the course of doing so, show how FISA is woefully out of date. Third, I'll examine very briefly the statutory argument on which Bob relies primarily and show that the argument uh, fail, how it fails. Fourth, I'll turn to what is my main concern, namely the constitutional argument, painting the historical and theoretical context in the course of doing so. And finally, I'll return to the practical considerations which explain, I believe, why cooler heads seem to be coming to the fore now on Capitol Hill. All right, now a couple of preliminary remarks. First, I'll focus on the NSA issue only, not on detention, not rendition, not torture, not Iraq, just the NSA issue. Secondly, uh, on foreign affairs, the court is the Constitution is seriously underdetermined, uh, and for good reason. Uh, when it comes to foreign affairs, and so that means that neither Bob and I will likely come up with a slam-dunk argument here. Um, nevertheless, on the NSA issue at least, I believe the arguments weigh very heavily on the side of the President. All right, let's turn um, then um, to a few facts, and here um, the overriding fact is that uh, we don't know many of the facts. Uh, the program is secret, uh, understandably so. Uh, the issues are technical. Uh, we're not talking here about agents going into a central telephone office and putting on uh, earphones and putting alligator clips on wires. Technology has gone way beyond that. The practical problems, however, are clear, and they were put very nicely by Judge Richard Posner, Chief Judge of the Seventh Circuit, uh, in a Wall Street Journal article on February 15th, in which he said that FISA may serve for monitoring the communications of known terrorists, uh, but it's hopeless as a framework for detecting terrorists. It requires that surveillance be conducted pursuant to warrants based on probable cause to believe that the target of surveillance is a terrorist when the desperate need is to find out who is a terrorist, which he likens to looking for a needle in a, hair in a haystack. So there's the practical problem that we're up against. Now on the technical side... I'm going to draw here from a forthcoming article by um, uh, K.A. Taipal. Uh, from, uh, he's adjunct at NYU Law School, and he's the executive director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Science and Technology. This is a piece that's going to be due out next month in the NYU Review of Law and Security. In modern networks, he says, communications are broken up into discrete packets that travel along independent routes and are then reassembled. Not only is there no longer a dedicated circuit, but individual packets from the same communication may take completely different paths to their destinations. 
To intercept these kinds of communications, filters and search strategies are deployed at various communication nodes to scan and filter all passing traffic, with the hope of finding and extracting those packets of interest and reassembling them into a coherent message. Even targeting a specific message from a known sender requires intercepting the entire communication flow. Were FISA strictly applied, he concludes, no automated monitoring of any kind could concur could occur. So there's the problem, both uh, tactical and technical, uh, in Barrist outline. Clearly, for surveillance to serve its purpose, we're going to have to make some changes. But let's assume that FISA can be fixed and ask, is the president bound by it? Some critics point to the Fourth Amendment, but let's remember that the Fourth Amendment, as Bob said, does not prohibit warrantless searches. It prohibits only unreasonable searches. And in the foreign affairs context, that word is read uh, rather more loosely than in the domestic affairs context. Most administration critics, however, don't rely on the Fourth Amendment. They point to FISA, which purports to provide the exclusive means and claim that the president is in violation of that law. The president responds, as you heard Bob say, that the, the authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF, passed right after 9-11, trumps FISA by authorizing the president to use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force. Critics respond that the law disfavors implied repeals. But that's not an absolute rule, as the Hamdi court demonstrated. Hamdi had argued that the Federal Anti-Detention Act, about which the AUMF was silent, prohibited his detention. But Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion, joined by Justice uh, Thomas on the point, which makes it the court's opinion, held that the AUMF's authorization to use all necessary and appropriate force entailed as one of the, quote, fundamental incidents of war, the power to indefinitely detain um, citizens declared to be enemy combatants. Well, if that's one of the fundamental incidents of war, then surely foreign intelligence gathering is as well. Moreover, the canon of statutory construction that Bob cites uh, is only one among several such canons. A higher canon, arguably, is constitutional avoidance in the context of respect for an unbroken tradition of executive monitoring of foreign communications. Thus, uh, an interpretation of FISA and the AUMF together that precludes a court from having to reach the constitutional question of the president's inherent power is to be preferred, and that works in the president's favor. But I'm not going to avoid the uh, constitutional question. In fact, that is the centerpiece of my argument. And I'm going to start by uh, saying that the critics speak of the imperial president. What about the imperial Congress? What's at play here, I submit? and here Cato people listen carefully, is what I'll call the post-Vietnam overlay on the post-progressive view of the Constitution. And it's at war with the Constitution. What do I mean by that? Progressives, remember, we just published a book on the subject by Richard Epstein, are the people who, when they finally got their program through the New, New Deal, instituted a regime of essentially congressional premise, uh, supremacy. We think of Roosevelt as engaging in executive supremacy, but it really wasn't. He was simply carrying out the programs he wanted Congress to pass, Social Security and on and on, all the modern regulatory and redistributive programs. And what we see coming out of the wretched 70s is the application of that uh, regime to the foreign affairs. I say wretched, and I use that adjective to denote a decade that began, if you'll remember, with Nixon's wage and price controls and ended with uh, uh, Clinton's malaise 
in between, which was uh, the Bush uh, whip inflation now buttons. There was the Sonnenfeld doctrine of the, of, um, of convergence and uh, uh, of the two systems of moral equivalency uh, in the cultural realm. There was discotheque. There were leisure suits. It was an absolutely reprehensible decade. In fact, I saw a picture once of Bob in a leisure suit. He looked pretty good in it, as I recall. Um, and that was a recent picture, too. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, so now, if you think that I'm overstating the matter with respect to the congressional intrusion into foreign affairs, reflect on this datum. In the two decades between 1964 and 1984, the congressional publication Legislation on Foreign Relations increased fivefold from one 650-page volume to three volumes of over a 1,000 pages each. It was a massive expansion of congressional micromanagement of the executive's conduct of foreign affairs, no better illustrated than by the War Powers Resolution passed in 1973 and FISA in 1978. And you recall the War Power Resolution has been held by every administration, Republican and Democrat alike, to be an unconstitutional intrusion on the executive uh, power in foreign affairs. In fact, Clinton ignored it uh, outright. So to put this thesis in context, I want to ask, what are the presumptions, exactly what Bob concluded with, and who has the burden of proof? Bob has stated his view on that. Uh, in Senate testimony, he argued, as he did this morning, that Congress's concurrent power implies that the burden of proof rests with the president to show that a congressional restriction on his inherent foreign affairs policy is unnecessary and improper. I submit that that turns the Constitution on its head, much as the progressives did in the domestic realm with their New Deal constitutional revolution. In the 1930s, they paved the way for congressional dominance over domestic affairs. In the 70s, they did the same over foreign affairs. Now, to show how uh, this effort is at war with the Constitution, I want to draw on four sources, text, original understanding, history, and the cases. As I'll illustrate in a moment, critics of the NSA program rarely go to those sources because they all cut against their argument. Let's start with text, which is the strongest argument, and look at the vesting clauses. You look at those clauses and you see Article I vests the legislative power in the Congress. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power is granted. Indeed, you look at Article I, Section 8, and you see the main powers that were granted. In other words, the vesting clause with respect to Congress is qualified. By contrast, the vesting clause with respect to the executive and the judicial branches are not. The executive power, the whole executive power, is given to the president just as the uh, judicial power is given to the Supreme Court in Article 3. And so what this means is that we are dealing here with a doctrine of enumerated powers. Therefore, if Congress is going to restrain the executive, it's got to do so under one of its enumerated powers. I'll come back to that shortly. The executive power, of course, is wide open as to what it means. How do we figure that out? We go to the original sources, just as the framers did. They went to Locke, Montesquieu, Blackstone. Locke, for example, in paragraph 13, speaks of the executive power as the power that each of us has in the state of nature to secure his rights. It's a plenary power that we, when we come out of the state of nature, give up to government in various ways. A good part of it, the bulk of it, in fact, is given to common law state courts, but others is parceled out differently. In paragraph 14, 47, Locke moves over to after the state of nature and characterizes the executive power as the federative power. But notice what he says about it. 
says the management of the security and interest of the public without, that is, uh, toward outsiders, with all those that it may receive benefit or damage from. That's how he describes it. He continues, it is much less capable to be directed by antecedent standing positive laws, such as FISA, than by the executive, and so must necessarily be left to the prudence and wisdom of those whose hands it is in to be managed for the public good. Here's Montesquieu, he des- uh, described by Madison in Federalist 47 as the oracle who is always consulted. He says that the executive establishes the public security and provides against invasion. And, of course, Madison and others in the convention drew from experience. He said that he taught by the framers the folly of legislative dominance um, uh, and... um, and he, he says the experiences prove the tendency in our governments to throw all power into the legislative vortex. The executives of the states are in general little more than ciphers. The legislature's omnipotent. Remember, when they went to the convention in uh, 1787, um, one of the principal reasons for writing a new constitution was to create a more powerful, unified executive to deal with foreign affairs. Um, now, the... Um, uh, and, 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 and therefore they call for a unified, forceful executive under the Articles, uh, unlike what they had under the Articles of Confederation. But Madison overstates the matter slightly, and I'm going to just digress here a little bit to give you some flavor of this. Just as Gordon Wood uh, has shown us that uh, the founders learned a great deal during that 11-year period uh, with respect to the judiciary, so recent research has shown how it w- they were on a learning curve from 1776 to 87 with respect to the uh, to the uh, executive branch. In fact, what they had was several different experiments to draw from. They had, don't forget, the governors were given primarily executive power under the Articles of Confederation, and they had constitutions to look to that divided, uh, that, that separated the executive power into various parts. But substantively, it was generally all the same with the exception of South Carolina. They had New York, uh, 1777, Massachusetts, 1780, and New Hampshire to look to in 1784 for strong executives. By contrast, they had a 12-person executive committee in Pennsylvania to look to, and in South Carolina, a committee whose power was derived entirely from the executive. They had all these models. They didn't choose the weak ones. They chose the strong ones. And here's Madison. The executive power being in general terms vested in the president, all power of an executive nature not particularly taken away must belong to that department. That's in 1789, the first year of the Congress. Madison again, the executive power being in general terms vested in the president, all powers of an executive nature not particularly taken away must belong to that department. And here's Jefferson, who, if memory serves me correctly, appears on the Cato logo uh, as secretary of state. Is called foreign affairs at the time, the executive powers shall be vested in the president, submitting only special articles of it to a negative by the Senate. The transaction of business with foreign nations is executive altogether. It belongs then to the head of the department, except as to such portions of it as are specially submitted to the Senate. And then he adds, and note carefully, exceptions are to be construed strictly. All right, when we turn to the cases, we find the same thing, essentially an unbroken, uh, uniform um, series of cases, all defending the executive in these. The foreign affairs belong exclusively to the executive, except as specifically reserved. In fact, Duke Law Professor H. Uh, Jefferson Powell 
who served in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Clinton Justice Department, commented in a 1999 article on recent scholarship that rejects this view. He says, the problem with those espousing the congressional primacy of constitutional foreign affairs authority uh, is that to do so requires one to repudiate or distinguish away most of what the Supreme Court appears to have said on the subject over the years. Indeed, look at Youngstown, the very case on which Bob's uh, constitutional argument rests primarily. Um, and uh, it is a case that is fraught with difficulty for that end. First, it deals with a domestic matter, seizure of a steel case and the settlement of a labor dispute. It's not a foreign policy matter. Secondly, it's the opinion of only one justice. Thirdly, it's dicta. Fourthly, it's metaphor. Fifthly, even on its own terms, the passage didn't say the president didn't have power. It said his power was at its lowest, which is a political, not a legal point. And finally, Justice Jackson carefully distinguished the seizure of private property within the United States from a case involving external affairs. He noted that the president's conduct of foreign affairs was, quote, largely uncontrolled and often even as unknown by the other branches. And he added, and I quote, I should indulge the widest latitude of interpretation to sustain the president's exclusive function to command the instruments of national force, at least when turned against the outside world for the security of our society. End of quote. The Keith case of 1972, which the critics often cite, is again a case that involved domestic threats, and it's, the case repeatedly distinguished itself from others involving the president's constitutional power to collect foreign surveillance. And let me turn finally to the Inree Sealed case of November 2002, the, appellate, the FISA appellate court. Uh, uh, in an opinion uh, uh, on uh, th th this is now uh, on FISA post Patriot Act, the court spoke directly to the issue of inherent executive power, citing an earlier case called Trong that dealt with pre FISA surveillance based on, and I quote, the president's constitutional responsibility to conduct the foreign affairs of the United States. The court said, and again I quote, the Trong court, as did all the other courts to have decided the issue held that the president did have inherent authority to conduct warrantless searches to obtain foreign intelligence information. We take for granted that the president does have that authority, and assuming that is so, FISA could not encroach on the president's constitutional power. The Supreme Court let the decision stand. Now, it's true that in the very next sentence, as Bob has said in his testimony, the court went on to say, that the question before us is, is the reverse, namely, does FISA amplify the president's power by providing a mechanism that at least approaches a classic warrant and which therefore supports the government's contention that FISA searches are, conditionally, are constitutionally reasonable. But all that shows is that the case was about. It was about a challenge. On, um, it was, wasn't about a, a challenge on the power side, pitting Congress against the president, but on the right side, asking whether the relaxed Fourth Amendment standards afford by FISA, which arguendo amplify the president's power, can pass Fourth Amendment constitutional muster. The court held that they do pass muster, but nothing in that sentence takes away from what the court had just said about the president's inherent foreign surveillance powers. Nevertheless, when it speaks of amplifying the president's power, the sentence does raise troubling questions at the heart of the critic's case. How can Congress, by mere statute, 
amplify constitutional executive power, thereby reducing Fourth Amendment rights, or conversely, reduce the inherent executive power through a statute like FISA. To put the last half of that question otherwise, how can an inherent power that has been exercised without objection for nearly 200 years be reduced by mere statute? But to press the constitutional point even further, let's turn to the basic constitutional question for those critics of the NSA program who still subscribe to the doctrine of enumerated powers, as all of us here at the Cato Institute do. Where does Congress find its power to restrict the president's inherent power to gather foreign intelligence? Bob points to Congress's power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, but the purpose of that power was to enable Congress to establish a system of military law and justice outside the ordinary jurisdiction of the civil courts. It wasn't to enable Congress to micromanage the military. Or again, Bob cites, as you just heard him, the necessary and proper clause, which gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution its powers and all other powers vested in the government. But here again, that clause has to be read in historical context. Under the Articles of Confederation, Congress had only those powers that were explicitly given to it, and that uh, cabined its power tremendously. Uh, Under the Constitution, it was given the necessary and proper power, that is to say, the means to carry out its own and the other powers uh, as as, uh, enumerated. And so... If uh, it gives Congress the means to carry out for itself or others those other powers, not the power to reduce the power of other branches. Indeed, in Cato's amicus brief in the Sabri case in 2004, we argued that it would be improper for Congress to use its instrumental power in a way that undercut Federalist arrangements. So uh, to uh, to here in the separation of power arrangements, I'll say to Bob's credit that he hasn't gone to the Commerce Clause, as some on his uh, side do, to make to make his point. Uh, but that enables me to make my point. If we're serious about wanting to revive the doctrine of enumerated powers, we have to be consistent about it. So is Congress entirely powerless in these matters? No, it has the power of the purse and ultimately the power of impeachment. But once again, it must use its spending power carefully can't use it, for example, to try to achieve indirectly what it can't achieve directly. When Congress tries to micromanage the executive in foreign affairs, as it did with FISA, it leads eventually only to the kind of judicial hermeneutics concerning what Congress really meant uh, that we see in the Inree Sealed case. And that, if that case brought out anything, it's how earlier courts doing the same led to the erroneous erection of a wall between counterintelligence and law enforcement, and that may have led tragically to September 11. Recall former FBI agent Colleen Rowley's congressional testimony on the point? Indeed, just a month ago. In the Musawi trial, we heard the testimony of current FBI agent Harry Samet to the effect that he tried only days before 9-11 to get a warrant to search Musawi's laptop, only to be told that he didn't have enough to satisfy the FISA restrictions. In other words, when FISA was enacted back in the 70s, Congress decided to err on the side of privacy, not security, and we paid the price for it. In the end, as the framers understood foreign affairs, with all its variables and subtleties, is more a matter for politics than law. 
And in the NSA matter, we're starting to see the cooler heads are starting to prevail on Capitol Hill as the shrill call by Senator Feingold to censure the president is going nowhere and Senator Specter's earlier calls for further legislation have attracted few supporters. Early on, the president briefed eight members of Congress about the program. He's now briefed 17 members of the intelligence committees uh, to the apparent satisfaction of all. And just this morning, there comes a CQ report that Senator Specter, quote, is considering changes to his bill aimed at governing the NSA uh, surveillance program that would buttress President Bush's claim that he has inherent constitutional authority to conduct the surveillance. The bill provides for congressional oversight of the program, which is perfectly proper under Congress's spending power. Let me conclude for the benefit of my libertarian friends by pointing to the name that appears above this stage F.A. Hayek, who warned us against the kind of central economic planning that characterizes uh, the modern regulatory state. The underlying principle is the same here. As 9-11 makes clear, Congress can no more manage by statute the business of foreign intelligence gathering than it can manage the economy. We forget that lesson at our peril. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Uh, we'll now allow each debater five minutes of rebuttal. And well, let me start with uh, Roger's contention that the Hamdi decision interpreted the authorization to use military force uh, broadly. The government insisted in Hamdi that a U.S. citizen could be detained indefinitely without access to counsel, without a hearing, uh, without knowing the basis for his detention. The court, the court plurality agreed that a U.S. citizen uh, can be detained, and it cited the AUMF. But it went on to say, only Taliban combatants, only with access to counsel, only after notice of the factual basis for the classification, only after a hearing, and not, by the way, indefinite detention for purposes of interrogation. So in other words, the Hamdi court interpreted the AUMF, the scope of that statute, very narrowly. Not even Hamdi's lawyers had argued that the government had to promptly release enemy soldiers uh, captured on the battlefield. Each and every one of the government's other contentions were rebuffed by the court. And indeed, if the AUMF authorized Hamdi's continued detention, why did the Defense Department turn around and release him after declaring in court papers that merely allowing him to meet with his counsel would jeopardize uh, compelling national security interests? Roger also makes the point that the Congress has overreached, that it does not have power. Well, Congress has a long list of powers, many of which I cited, including, most importantly, the Necessary and Proper Clause. But to be specific about it, Congress does have the power to define and punish offenses against the law of nations, and that has been cited no less than a few weeks ago as the authority for John McCain's Torture Victims Protection Act. And torture and surveillance are both dealing with the involuntary extraction of information. Congress also has the power, expressly laid out in Article I, to make rules for the regulation of the land and naval forces. That has been cited not only for the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but also for World War II's military tribunals, which, like surveillance, deal with evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, Roger then goes on to say that the executive power is more or less plenary during times of war. Well, let's look at Article 2 itself. Section 1 of Article 2 says the executive power shall be vested in a president. Now, the use of the word a creates this unitary executive, but it does not define the scope of the executive power. It merely creates an executive power. Section 2 says 
the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. Now, that clause, it makes the president the top general. But again, it does not define the scope of his power, much less excuse him from compliance uh, with the law. And uh, Justice uh, Robert Jackson uh, famously said in respect of that, uh, the president is is not commander-in-chief of the country, only of the military. And, of course, there's Section 3 of Article 2 which says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And along with the president's authority in Article 2 comes this obligation to execute the laws. And among the laws to be faithfully executed is FISA. And the president has some discretion in enforcing the law. But that does not include the latitude to pick and choose which laws he's going to enforce or, even more particularly, to take actions that those laws expressly prohibit. Now, I reject the proposition that the president, but for his ability to order this domestic uh, warrantless surveillance, would be impotent in the war on terror. First, he has expansive power uh, to conduct surveillance outside the United States. FISA doesn't prohibit that. And second, the Patriot Act and FISA and other statutes have given him broad leeway within the United States. And third, he has considerable, but not plenary, inherent authority when Congress has approved, and even when Congress has been silent. But when Congress exercises its own powers, which are quite clearly set out in the Constitution, and expressly prohibits what the president would like to undertake, the president's power is limited. The constitutionality of this congressional inaction, namely FISA, has been tested only once by the FISA appellate court in the case that Roger cited, in Ray Sealed case. Now, you heard the quote from that case. The president has inherent wartime authority, and FISA could not encroach on the president's constitutional power. The question before us, said the court, is the reverse. Not whether FISA encroaches, but whether or not FISA amplifies the president's power without violating the Fourth Amendment. And the court concluded that FISA permissibly expanded the president's surveillance power and did not violate the Fourth Amendment. FISA's restrictive provisions were simply a clarification of his new and expanded authority. This case, sealed case, provides no support whatsoever for the assertion that FISA unconstitutionally constrains the president. Indeed, the court expressly found that FISA is constitutional. Roger speaks about Youngstown. He said, well, look, it's just a domestic case. It is not a domestic case. Youngstown relates to the executive's war powers. You will recall that Truman had argued that a labor strike would irreparably damage national security during the Korean War, and that steel production (coughs) under Youngstown, because of the labor strike, was essential to the production of war munitions. And that that case, Youngstown, has been applied in a modern wartime context recently by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in holding that the government could no longer imprison uh, Jose Padilla. Roger finally says the losses are trivial. Why should we be concerned? Well, I can name at least three good reasons. First, there are false positives. There are probably hundreds of thousands of leads that are illegitimate for each legitimate lead from this surveillance. Those false positives can make each and every one of us a target. Second, there's the matter of hacking and other security breaches that could compromise financial records and medical records, even lead to identity theft. And third, there's database misuse, like tax prosecutions and drug prosecutions and other criminal prosecutions that should probably be subject to the Fourth Amendment. 
Now, naturally, the keepers of the data, they promise us confidentiality. Well, you tell that to the Japanese Americans uh, who's <clears throat> who were interned after census data was compromised. Or tell it to taxpayers whose records were illegally snooped by IRS uh, during the 1990s. The animating sentiment at the time of the founding was fear of executive power, the return of the king. Against that backdrop, it's simply remarkable that the president now claims to wield this unilateral power with no safeguard. In effect, he wants an irrebuttable presumption without judicial review that nearly anything he wants to do is okay. Thank you. Well, let's start with a little clarification. First of all, I did not say that the Hamby decision came down broadly, as uh, Bob attributed to me. It was indeed very narrow, but it still came down, making the point that I attributed to it, namely that the um, uh, that the the detention was. Uh, permissible under the AUMF. Even the AUMF did not speak explicitly to the point. And uh, likewise, uh, I, I submit that if, the, um, if, if a test were to be made of the, um, of the uh, surveillance, it would, it would come out the same way. Uh, secondly, Bob uh, said that the, um, he would also cite the law of nations, uh, as in the torture case. Fine. That's exactly where the law of nations applies in a case like the torture case, because it involves the code of military justice, including such things as military tribunals. It does not. Uh, the case of NSA surveillance is entirely different. Uh, uh, it does not fall under law of nations remotely. Um, thirdly, um, Bob says that Article 2 does not define the scope of the power of the executive. I fully granted that. That's why we have to go behind it to figure out what it is they had in mind at that time. Fourthly, um, Bob says uh, that uh, the INRI sealed case, the 2002 case from the uh, FISA Court of Appeals, uh, offers no support forever for the what, whatever for the claim that FISA uh, uh, unconstitutionally uh, restricts uh, the president. I never claimed that it did. In fact, uh, it is, as I've made very clear, uh, primarily dealing with a challenge from the fourth, on Fourth Amendment grounds. Remember, this was a case uh, that was, uh, as all FISA cases are, um, in, uh, it, it is a um, ex parte case, uh, uh, it's simply the government going before the court seeking a warrant. And in this case, the lower court uh, imposed restrictions on the government that it found uh, untenable, and so it appealed for the first time and only time to the appellate court. But the appellate court, in the course of hearing that appeal, invited briefs from the ACLU and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, both of whom lost in that case. Uh, and uh, so it was a, a Fourth Amendment case at the end of the day, not a powers case, exactly as I said in my prepared remarks. Um, finally, uh, let me... Um, uh, let me, um, what will I conclude with? Let me see here. Um, the, yeah, I, I'll conclude with the, um, the Henry Sealed case. Because it seems to me that there, the court finally got to the heart of the matter. Courts up to that point had been drawing a distinction between foreign and domestic. If it was domestic, you had to go through the normal Fourth Amendment procedure. If it was foreign, you didn't. Um, or at least you had to go through uh, the FISA court if it was domestic and related to foreign intelligence. The Henry Sealed case cut through that and said the real issue is functional. What is the function of the surveillance? If it is part of foreign affairs, foreign intelligence gathering, 
then it, it, it is to be treated very differently than if it is ordinary criminal cases. And it seems to me that's the distinction that we need uh, to live with. Uh, and uh, I, would, I would note uh, finally that um, the, um, the issue of surveillance, Bob uh, talks constantly about the president's elevated wartime powers. Surveillance is an ongoing thing. It's been going on from the beginning of the nation. It's not something that is conducted merely during wartime. Therefore, the idea of authorizing it only under wartime provisions is fundamentally misguided. It is a, a project that has to be done 24-7 uh, uh, year-round and will for the foreseeable future. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Let's uh, open this up for some questions, and uh, please wait for the microphone to be brought to you. May I ask that the questions and the answers be short, because I think there will be uh, a number of questions. All the way in the back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dave Kahn. Roger, I hope your cold gets better real soon. Dave, I haven't seen job. you in ages. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this is a softball. <laughs> A uh, slightly different slant on uh, the Fourth Amendment arguments. Um, in general, where there is no expectation of privacy, there's no violation of the Fourth Amendment. Why should anybody have any expectation of privacy in an international communication? The NSA case requires at least one party to be outside the United States. It's an export. Uh, it's in an area where I wouldn't think it even has to be a terrorist. I don't see why anybody who's making a telephone call outside of the United States should have any expectation of privacy, and certainly at this point they no longer uh, do have an expectation of privacy. I don't see any violation, and I don't see any reason even to restrict it to terrorism. You're talking outside the U.S., then you're talking in public as far as I'm concerned, and I, I just don't see the need for any... Um, uh, need to go to FISA or to the courts generally or anyplace else. I wonder if any, either one of you could comment on that. Yeah, I'd like to comment uh, two points. <clears throat> First, there's no case support whatsoever for the notion that when I make a phone call to London, England, or Paris, France, I have no expectation of privacy. Or when I send email to somebody <clears throat> overseas that I have no expectation of privacy. Uh, if you can find case support for that, I'm, I'm willing to be... <clears throat> convinced otherwise. But I have seen no case, and indeed I believe there is no case. The other point that I think is uh, just as important is the Justice Department was asked specifically by Congress in March of this year to deny that the NSA program extended to all domestic communications, that is, communications starting in the United States and ending in the United States. <clears throat> the Justice Department has refused to deny that. Of course, they would have denied even the existence of the NSA program between domestic and foreign were it not for the leak in the New York Times. So it may be that we'll need another leak in the New York Times before we find out that all domestic communications are also subject to the NSA program. This distinction between domestic and foreign is an illusory distinction. There's an expectation of privacy in both. The... Um Bob says there's no case support for the no expectation of privacy. Uh, there's no case support for the alternative either. Ron? Uh, Ron Rotunda, George Mason. 
normally when you get a warrant is to show, for example, AT&T, let me in the building and put the clamps and listen in. Or I go to the apartment and the landlord or the lease, lease uh, the, the tenant has to let me in. That's what you show the warrant to somebody. So you, I guess the proposal is this is under NSA and therefore you have to get a warrant. Who do you show the warrant to? Because what I've read is that they're taking basically packets up in cyberspace of uh, information communicated by a cell phone in Hamburg to one in, in Northern Virginia. So you'd get this warrant. I mean, why would Congress pass a law, if we're interpreting the law, that would require somebody to get a warrant that you show to nobody else? Well, that's the very nature of a FISA warrant. That's what distinguishes FISA warrants from ordinary criminal warrants. These warrants are... Uh, they are garnered ex parte. Only the government is a party to the case. The warrants are secret. Uh, the party who is the subject of the warrant never finds out about the warrant. And so Congress has passed a law to govern this other class of warrants. They are not shown to anybody. And, and by the way, with respect to this data mining that you speak to, uh, that's not prohibited by the FISA statute. As long as the intended target of the surveillance is not a U.S. person in the United States, the surveillance is permissible. A factual misstatement, I think. I have the FISA warrant to go into your apartment. The landlord tries to stop me. I can show him the warrant. The cop tries to stop me for the ordinary trespass. I show him the warrant. I could get in. And because it is a real warrant, I could introduce it in evidence against you in a criminal case. I mean, a FISA warrant's a full Fourth Amendment warrant. But the, the non-warrant searches up in cyberspace. There's nobody to show them to. I don't think they could be introduced in the court. There's, they're just done in an area that's, that is what, not within the jurisdiction of any country. Well, indeed, again, in, in responding to uh, congressional questions, the Justice Department has said that, yes, the evidence from a FISA warrant can be introduced in court. And the fact that these warrants apply to electronic data, gather, uh, data gather, gathering that, uh, that emanates from perhaps out of space and that the warrant isn't shown to anybody. Um, may be true, Ron, but I don't know why that should impact whether or not, indeed, the president has violated a law that Congress has duly enacted. I might just add this CQ piece this morning points to some of the practical problems, as I read it, that Ron is bringing up. It says a draft substitute amendment by Specter was circulated among committee members would eliminate the requirement for approval by the FISA court because of concerns, among other Republicans, that the mechanism is unworkable. Uh, I think there are real practical problems with uh, with uh, this whole issue that uh, is, are coming now to be realized. It, it, indeed, the statute may be unworkable. There may be real practical problems, neither of which authorize the president to pick and choose which statutes he's going to decide to obey and which ones he's not going to decide to obey. This well, is a matter of whether or not the president has the power unilaterally to disregard a duly enacted law passed by Congress, signed by a previous president, and implicitly signed by this president because he signed the Patriot Act, which amended the FISA statute. To respond to that, the president was working both sides of it, the statutory side insofar as that argument would prevail, and the constitutional side insofar as that argument would prevail. And the history of presidents ignoring uh, laws is longstanding. Jefferson, in fact, refused to enforce the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts when he became president, and it continues. And take uh, the signing statements about which Bush is so heavily criticized uh, uh, as recently as this morning in the Post by uh, uh, our friend um, um, 
what's his name about used to be in Seattle? Michael Kinsley. Michael Kinsley, yes. I mean, this goes back. Kinsley said this began with Reagan. That shows you what an historian Kinsey is. Uh, this goes back to at least to Eisenhower, and that comes from a memo that uh, that uh, Walter Dellinger wrote uh, uh, when he was uh, in OLC uh, in the Justice Department for Clinton. Uh, indeed, Roosevelt would tell you uh, which parts of a bill he thought were unconstitutional and was not going to enforce. So, Yes. In the back. Right. Stand up. Yes. Hi, Alan Gura. I have, a, first of all, an observation and then a question. Uh, Roger, you started uh, by referencing a new right, a positive right to security. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, the courts have uh, repeatedly rejected that. There's not going to be any lawsuit by a terrorism victim against the federal government for lack of a national defense any more than you can sue the police for not protecting you or the fire department for not responding to your uh, burning house. Uh, if we do have positive rights to security that must be secured by the president, I'm sure the next one would be education, health care, food, housing, and, and so on. Uh, quite surprising to hear that uh, here at Cato. But my question really is, at what point is the foreign relations justification here too attenuated to justify behavior by the president in the domestic sphere. Are you suggesting a kind of Wickard v. Filburn rationale where since everything is somehow related to commerce, well, at some point everything is somehow related to foreign relations and the president can do all kinds of things in the domestic sphere. We have a war on drugs. We have a war on crime. We have a war on poverty. Uh, we have uh, a nation at risk report that said if a foreign nation imposed our educational system on us, we'd consider it an act of war. Uh, certainly all of these issues and many more have some kind of international relations component to them. Why shouldn't the president have plenary authority to prosecute all of these wars by doing whatever uh, he or she uh, feels like uh, in the domestic sphere? And are there any limitations? Tell us what you really think, Alan. Um, the um, uh, the first first of all, this is a right to be secure. I was speaking metaphorically there. You know that, Alan. Actually, I wasn't. I was speaking about the political right. Indeed, the Declaration of Independence speaks of it, does it not? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's why we create government. That's why we authorize you know, the Congress to create an army and a navy and so on and so forth. So this right to be secure is not some right I invented out of whole cloth just because it is not justiciable uh, doesn't mean that it is not a right in the grand political scheme of things. Now, with respect to the second half of which was your real question, uh, I've forgotten what was your real question. Uh, it dealt with... Um, um, where, where is the president's authority limited acting oh, yeah. in the domestic sphere so long as he comes up with a foreign relations rationale? Right. He can do anything, yeah, right? Well, you remember in my remarks I said that, you know, that uh, the Constitution is severely underdetermined in this area. And I also said that probably neither Bob nor I could come up with a slam-duck argument. And the reason for that is is because what is required here is judgment. There are no bright lines that we're talking about here. That's why I would prefer to see what the framers wanted uh, put in place, namely to reduce these matters to political determination. We didn't have Congress seeking to pass statutes under everything under the sun to draw these kinds of lines, which inherently cannot be drawn. These are matter That's why the oversight that Congress is now proposing is the right way to go about this. And uh, notice what they're talking about on the Hill. They're talking about a 45 or a 90-day authorization of the program not of specific warrants. And that's a far cry 
from what we've got today. So I fully concur with you. There are no bright lines here, and we have to be on guard to make sure that the president isn't abusing his power. But that's a political matter. Not everything. I know it's hard for a lawyer to appreciate that not everything is a legal matter, but some things are political matters. Just a brief comment, and that is this. The surveillance of a U.S. person in the United States is not foreign relations. It's a domestic matter. And indeed, if you think about the title of the statute, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, foreign, the adjective, doesn't modify surveillance. It modifies intelligence. The statute, the FISA statute, was specifically intended to distinguish between foreign surveillance on the one hand, which was not restricted, and domestic surveillance on the other was restricted, both of which are part of the foreign intelligence gathering. Are you suggesting that a call from Osama bin Laden to a sleeper cell in the United States is not a foreign affairs matter? It is a foreign affairs matter, but it is also domestic surveillance. And well, therefore, of course it is, but, it's, all, but it's, its primary function is foreign affairs, and that's why it falls to the NSA to monitor this kind of uh, communication, because only so will we be able to nip it in the bud. I mean, the, the whole point of the testimony of Summit and before that Rowley was that they tried uh, to get the, uh, to, to cross the T's and dot the I's and failed just a few days before 9-11. Who knows what uh, would have happened if they'd been able to do so. In fact, uh, is it, uh, who's the uh, head of the, Healy? Uh, Healy? Healy? Uh, who was uh, NSA director and now is uh, uh, Deputy uh, White House um, National Security Advisor. Hayden, Hayden, there we go, yes, uh, testified that uh, in his judgment, uh, if we had had that kind of intelligence, we might very well have been able to prevent 9-11. So I, I just uh, don't think that you can draw a bright line remotely between foreign and domestic in a, in a matter of this kind. Uh, right over here. Yes. Uh, Wait for the microphone, please. We hear you. Go ahead. This is particularly to Mr. Levy. Uh, does the Office of President, as Commander-in-Chief, have any inherent powers that Congress cannot bridge, restrict, or deny? Well, sure. There are, there are important powers uh, under the Commander-in-Chief Clause, the most important of which is that uh, that the president is the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. That's what the clause says. That means he's the top general. It means that the Congress cannot appoint somebody else as the top general. It means that the Army and the Navy are under civilian control and not military control. It probably means that the president can conduct emergency operations if we're invaded without immediately asking for a congressional uh, authorization. So those are some of the powers that the commander-in-chief clause uh, provides. But bear in mind, as Justice Jackson said, he is not commander-in-chief of the nation. He is commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy. Yes, but Richard Epstein argued in the Wall Street Journal that Congress could, if it chose, uh, tell the Army to not use live ammunition in combat. Uh, even Bob rejects that. But uh, it strikes me that uh, there may be some close calls to be made here, but 
we have seen an explosion of congressional micromanagement uh, using the spending power to tell uh, the the uh, the uh, president to prevail upon the Israelis to move the capital from what was it Jerusalem to um, Tel Aviv or the other way around I can't remember what and 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 this, this kind of uh, of activity I mean it simply is unprecedented in the nation's history that Congress should be so deeply involved in these kinds of issues. Of course, if it's unprecedented, and one would have thought that George Bush would have contended that the FISA statute was unconstitutional, he would not have signed the Patriot Act insofar as it amended the FISA statute. He would have told us about this prior to the New York Times release well, of, the, of the paper that disclosed the NSA security program. I think he has said that. and He has not. Uh, and the, 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 again, I'm saying he is working both avenues here, because for better or for worse, we live in a culture in which we think congressional dominance. I mean, the position that Bob is putting forward rings very true with millions of people in this country. Congress, I mean, it's, it's the 11th grade version of the American government. Congress makes the law, the executive carries it out, and the courts decide cases under it. That's not what our system of government is all about. That is the post-progressive era system of government. It's not the founders' system of government. The new system is where the president makes the law, the president executes the law, and the president what decides law? after the what fact. What law has the president? Whether, what law has misbehaved? What law has the president made? What law has the president made? Well, FISA. He's overriding he FISA. He didn't make it. He's repealing FISA all by himself. Well, that's no not to make the law. No bicameralism. That, just a unilateral repeal. That's of not the FISA making statute. the law. Well, you know, the Supreme Court said exactly the opposite in the line item veto case. Repealing a law is the same as making a law and therefore requires both presentment and bicameralism. In the back. Thanks, Bob Shadler. Uh, I'd like clarification on, on, I guess, four key points. One, war. It seems to me the Constitution is very clear about when we're at war and when we're not and Congress has to declare it, which it hasn't done. So we're not currently at war, are we? Is there agreement there? No. Two, terrorism. Uh, as the previous person said, it's, it's a condition that, that we can't declare war against it because it will never end. We can't declare that war, terror, the, the threat of terrorism is over. Third point, foreign, a uh, point also made. Uh, Terror, it, 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 if, if the point is to make us more secure, the fact that domestic people are plotting terrorist attacks in Oklahoma uh, is a distinction without much of a difference that if it's bin Laden. So the fact that they're all Native Americans who are doing it, uh, or they've become citizens, or that they've all arrived in the United States legally or illegally and are now conspiring to commit terrorism, uh, seems seems just as relevant as a foreign conversation. Um, fourth, uh, it, it seems, Roger, you want to make it a political issue. I'm happy for that to be. But if the president wakes up one morning, decides he has the power, orders that something be done, and makes it a crime punishable by imprisonment, that if anybody tells anybody else about it, it's, it's apolitical in the most extreme sense. It's political only if, if the polity is able to know and discuss it and, and, and uh, deal with it. So I, I think a lot of us are looking for where is the oversight. I'm not against the fact that there's an army, 
but I'm against the, uh, the, the possibility that a president wakes up one morning, says, I'm commander-in-chief, and figures he can use the, arg the army to do anything he wants. It seems that there was an argument um, immediately after 9-11 for doing this without oversight. It seems as time goes on, oversight is a necessary provision for, a for, for Hayek to be pleased with this. Well, Bob, you're raising an issue on all of these points that goes to the core of the problem we're facing here. This war on terror is not what we think of as a normal war in the World War II sense. At the same time, it's far more than what you would expect from um, crime. And there's been a great tension in the executive branches of several administrations over how to deal with terrorism, whether to deal with it from a foreign policy perspective or from a domestic law perspective, to treat it as a matter of crime or to treat it as an act of war. And unfortunately, there isn't a bright line here because it has the characteristics of both. Now, to address your questions, um, no, there is not a clear notion of war because the notion of war and declared war is only one aspect of war. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the history that we have. Don't forget, of the 100 to 200 foreign military involvements uh, that the nation has been in, only five of them have involved declared wars. My essay out on the front available on the uh, the uh, War Powers in Brief discusses these issues in much greater detail, so I won't say more about that. With respect to um, the point about foreign versus domestic terrorists, uh, here the Keith case addressed that and did distinguish between um, the foreign source. I agree there isn't a, a bright line operationally or practically between the two, uh, but one is treated more as a foreign policy matter because its source ultimately is outside the country. Um, the, um, the, the idea of the president wakes up and makes something a crime, the president can't do that, and I've never, and please don't misunderstand anything I've said here to imply that. The president has a cluster of plenary um, inherent powers, uh, just as the court does, just as Congress does, and the separation of powers doctrine requires that each of the branches respect the inherent plenary powers of the coordinate branches. All right, I'm going to take the last question right here. Jonathan Rausch. Uh, thank you. This has been marvelous. Jonathan Rausch of National Journal. Roger, I'm still trying to get my, my head around the question that's come up three different ways, so, so let me try yet again. It's Bob Levy's slippery slope question. If you are correct, what could Congress do, not what should it do? I understand you prefer a political solution in a messy world, but if there are no bright red lines, in principle, what can Congress do to limit a presidential program wielded by the president in what he claims is pursuit of foreign policy? The question, too, if you don't mind squeezing a second one, and if the Supreme Court rules 
that the president's intelligence gathering program is illegal, does that settle the issue? Does he then have to stop? Okay, the first question, what can Congress do? It can withhold the money. That's exactly what it can do. And it has the ultimate power of the purse. The president can do nothing without the wherewithal to do it. And it's the way it was done uh, in England in the 18th century, the 19th century with Parliament and the king. When the king got involved in some matter that the Parliament disapproved of, it simply cut off the money. That's all there was to it. The second question is, uh, it raises the issue of standing. Uh, and the question, and Bob discusses this in his testimony correctly. Um, the, uh, the problem is, you don't, who has standing to bring an action here? Uh, as I said at the outset, you won't, if your phone call is listened to or your email, someone looks at it, you won't even know it. So you wouldn't have suffered any loss. You don't have standing to bring an action. And this is a problem with both FISA and with the War Powers Resolution. During the 80s, um, uh, people on the, in the Senate side uh, worked with the Reagan administration to try to figure out how to bring an action to find the War Powers Resolution unconstitutional. They didn't ultimately come up with any measure because the courts do not give advisory opinions. They only decide cases or controversies that are brought before them, and here you don't have a plaintiff to bring the case or controversy. Um, a comment on that first with respect to the power of the purse. I mean, the NSA program, as you all know, is secret. Uh, it's secret not just to those of us in the audience here, but it's secret even to Congress. So Congress might indeed have to defund the entire NSA in order to defund this one program, the scope of which and the function of which is unknown uh, to the Congress. And even if Congress could find a way of defunding uh, the program itself, that would be, as, as Roger, I think, has argued uh, quite convincingly, that would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, we want this program. Much of this program may indeed be necessary and effective. We don't want Congress to defund it. What we want is for the president to obey the law. If the law is defective, then let's remedy it. And if his behavior is defective, then let's change his behavior. The, the Congress can defund parts of a program. They do it fairly regularly. Uh, there's no programs it doesn't know about. Nobody is calling for. Uh, no, no, no. But well, as I said in my prepared remarks, the uh, there were eight members of Congress, the two leaders on both sides of both houses, and the chairman and ranking member of the intelligence committees on both houses, uh, both chambers, uh, were briefed right from the start, and nobody raised any objections among them at that point. Since then, they have been briefed much more thoroughly, and in fact, if I uh, may uh, tell you, uh, here we go from the Washington Post of all places, April 10, uh, Representative Jane Harmon, the panel's ranking Democrat, publicly described the briefings as, quote, very complete and, quote, in great detail about how the program operates, end quote. I rest my case. This is just one more law that the president is violating. The National Security Act of 1947 requires him to brief the entire Intelligence Committee, both the House and the Senate. He has briefed the Gang of Eight and only under compulsion, under pressure from uh, the Congress and from and the press has he agreed to brief a few more people. And by the way, this few people, numbered in less than a dozen, cannot defund the program. Last I heard, it takes at least 51 votes in the Senate to defund the program. And it was Benjamin Franklin in 1776 who headed the four-member uh, Committee on Correspondence, which uh, in dealings with foreign nations pursuant to the revolution did not brief Congress because he said it leaks like a sieve. Ha, 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 ha.
Roger, can I just clarify something? I said that was the last question. This is oh, no. this is a clarification. I believe you said that FISA is an unconstitutional intrusion on the president's powers. So would it be constitutional for Congress to say, provided that no funds in this budget are used to carry out anything forbidden by FISA? No, because that would uh, be doing uh, – no, that would be doing indirectly what they cannot do directly. Then what is it they could defund? If they can't forbid the president to spy, they can, what they can they can, defund? They can, they, the, the Congress can defund uh, anything that in, – in an area in which it has uh, – uh, in which money is required, but they cannot restrict the inherent powers of the executive. All right. The issue is joined. Lunch is served upstairs. Please join us in uh, thanking our debaters. And help yourself to some of their written remarks that are on the table outside.